Hey, last week, hope not to start every week the way I have to start it this week, but I, I need to make a correction. If you have your notes, uh, and I know you'll go back to these, I trust you will at some point, we were looking at the usage of the word malak and the word angelos, and we said the first reference, well, it was the first reference we were trying to jot down on my overhead. It said Genesis 16.2. That was wrong. It's Genesis 16.7. And man, that 2 and 7 looks so much alike to my aging eyeballs. So uh, correct that if you still have that available. Genesis 16:7 is the first use of the word angel in uh, the Old Testament. Malak, at least. Well, we have much to cover tonight, talking about the nature, uh, classifications, rank, role of angels. And as I said last week, so much of what I'm doing this semester is unique to what I normally do in that uh, much of this comes from uh, my semester of study with Dr. Dickinson at uh, at my undergrad in Bible school and it was just such a great uh, learning time for me and so since you weren't there much of the structure of what we'll go through this semester comes from him and my classwork and class notes so just by way of disclaimer Usually that's not the case. I'd say never is that the case, but it is this semester. Before we get started, let's spend a little bit of time here asking God for good night. Pray with me, please. God, thank you very much for your word. It gives us insight into so many things that are uh, in our face every day, things we see, things we touch, things we deal with, uh, the onslaught of temptations we face, the the thinking of the world, and, and we see the connection so quickly and easily. But this is such a different kind of topic. It's hard. It uh, seems a bit esoteric. It's so uh, difficult for us to get our arms around this. Uh, and so much of what you told us about this angelic class of beings leaves us with a lot of questions. So, God, I pray we could move through some of the speculation to the facts that we could anchor our thoughts about what we know and can affirm about the angelic class of beings by uh, what we can look to and point to in the scriptures. So give us a good night of turning in your word, looking at the word, and gathering information that will be helpful in understanding something that you didn't, uh, you didn't neglect to share verse after verse, uh, hundreds and hundreds of times, uh, chapter after chapter, and almost uh, uh, well over half of the books of the Bible. So God, help us please. Uh, to ingest this with a, with an alert and sober mind. Give us a great night together studying your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's ask a few questions tonight, starting with what kind of beings are these angelic beings? First of all, let's jot this down. And when we look at the Bible, and here's a word I know that we like to use in our language, but is so helpful in understanding what we're trying to get at, and that is the word person or personhood. And uh, it may seem odd to refer to angels as persons, but we don't mean human beings. What we mean is what is reflected by the creative work of God in the creation account as it relates to mankind and what we observe about the angelic class. Uh, There are a few things. Uh, Traditionally, as we think of what it means to be a person, personhood, not a thing, not an animal, there are three categories that we look to and observe that are true in God and therefore in us as He creates beings in His image. 
Uh, number one, it would be that, that we are intellectual beings and we can look to the Scripture and see that the angelic class, uh, they have intellectual capacities through observation and investigation. They increase their knowledge. They learn. They reason. They think. And this is important for us to note. And it would be good for us to look at some of these passages together. I know I quoted this one last week, but please turn there. And if you keep your Bible open, we'll... I try to keep some of these together, not on the first couple slides here, but 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 10. I mean, when you look at the Old Testament and you see God uh, laying out His plan for the coming Messiah, uh, He clearly gives us undeniable proof that He is sending His Son according to His plan, but He gives a lot of things to us in... Uh, in ways and in motifs and in patterns, patterns and in genres that leave us really looking and searching and wondering. I mean, we got the time of the arrival of Christ buried in Daniel chapter 19 from the Babylonian exile to the coming of Christ, you know, under Herod's, uh, in, under his reign and his birth and, and, and his deliverance up under Pontius Pilate. But to, to, to ferret that out, uh, it takes some work. You've got to look through that text carefully. Look at the time markers and try and figure out what 70 sets of seven mean and all of that. But, but we can do it. It just takes some work. As Proverbs 25, 2 says, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search them out. And so we see in this context in 1 Peter 1, we're talking about the salvation that was realized in the New Testament. It says in verse number 10, concerning this salvation, 1 Peter 1.10, context here to verse 12, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, just as we do looking back hard enough before we saw the realization of it from a New Testament perspective. They were trying to figure this out from the Old Testament, inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of christ and the subsequent glories which is loaded in ezekiel and daniel and the minor prophets and zechariah all over the place it was revealed to them as they read and looked and inquired hmm they were not serving themselves it wasn't coming right then but you it was something in the future it was yet to come in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. All of that great, interesting, cool. I'm thinking about Old Testament prophets, scholars, figuring out these prophetic passages and piecing together the coming of Messiah. Then he adds this line, underline it. Things into which angels long to look. There is a picture of angelic beings thinking like the scholar, like the rabbi, like those in the synagogue trying to figure this out. That is a great line. And it shows us that they, like us, have the need for investigation, observation, realizing truths from propositions, inductive reasoning, deductive conclusions, all of that, much like us. They are intellectual beings. They are also emotional beings. You don't need to turn to this one. I think you know it by heart. But in the parable about the lost son and the lost coin and the lost sheep, those end with statements about rejoicing. And the one, for instance, with the lost coin, the, the gal finds her coin. She calls her friends together. Rejoice with me. I found the coin that was lost. And in verse number 10, it says, So I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
joy, expressions of joy, outbursts of joy. We feel what it would be like to lose something, your, your wedding ring, a diamond earring, and you search and you search and you search and you find it and you, you have this great emotional release of joy. The Bible says angels are doing that in heaven when one person comes to repentance. Uh, they're emotional beings. We could look elsewhere, but that's a great one because we can all know the feeling of finding something that's lost. And when God finds someone that's lost, they rejoice. They're also volitional beings. They make decisions. They're, uh, they, they're, they're culpable. They think. They choose. They decide. Isaiah chapter 14. There are two passages we'll refer to, particularly in the second half of the semester, as it relates to the fall of Satan. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, for instance, as we see, we move past the context and the verbiage moves outside of the context of historical kings into some angelic being. And, and so it is here that we derive from the text in the New Testament and Revelation and Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, in Ezekiel 38. When we read Isaiah 14, we see this decision that this high-ranking angel makes. And this, of course, is the beginning of of sin and rebellion in the universe. Isaiah 14, 12, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. More on that later tonight. How you were cut to the ground and laid low before nations. Why? Because you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. You had a pride problem above the stars of God, all the other angels. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the, of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Did you get what I'm emphasizing here? My will. <laughs> I have an evolution. I have a decision. I make decisions. I choose. Intellect, emotion, and will. And in that regard, just like today, you had feelings, you had emotions, you made decisions, you had thoughts, you reasoned, you figured things out. You had the same experience today that angelic beings have. They think, they feel, they reason, they decide, they choose. And that should give us some feeling of kinship with them. But before you get too cozy and thinking we're all just two peas in a pod, uh, remember that they're different than you in that they are spirit beings. Spirit beings. Here is the main point of departure that makes them so interesting to study and so interesting to learn about because they are not like us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, we're going to get into that several times throughout this year. You don't need to turn there, but it ends with the statement that the angels, after comparing the angels to Christ, are all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who would inherit salvation. They are spirits. They're described that way. We are not described that way as a total being. We are a composite being. We are encased in matter. They are not. You know this text too. We don't need to turn to this one. But you remember when God creates, He creates man out of the dust of the earth. There's material matter, right? There's, there's corporal, you know, real stuff. And then he breathes into man the breath of life, and he becomes a living nepesh, a living soul, a living person. And often, by the way, just to figure those words out, that's usually how they're used in the Bible. We have a, we are a spirit. We have a body, and together, as body and spirit, we're we're described as a living soul, like the captain on the on the ship. How many souls on board? That the soul, the the person. That's a, a larger, more encompassing word. We are in a body, but we are a spirit. Now, the angelic beings are spirits. They have intellect, motion, and will, and so are we. But 
we're encased in flesh. We don't know what it's like not to be encased in flesh. We will one day when we die, but we don't know that experience yet. As a matter of fact, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, when we are removed from our bodies, we will feel naked, or at least he describes it that way, and we'll long to be clothed with our eternal dwelling, a resurrection body that's not subject to corruption, that is not, it's impervious to death and disease and dying and decay. But that's not how we're designed to live. We are designed to live encased in, in matter. Now, if you think, okay, they're not encased in matter, they're not stuck in a body, uh, then they get to just be everywhere at once. Well, that's not true. God is described that way as an infinite spirit. Demons and angels are described as finite spirits. Let's look at these two passages real quick. Uh, they're near each other. Daniel chapter 9, verse 21. Angels are spirit beings, and I know that brings up a lot of questions because there's a lot of descriptions of them not being just spirit, but we'll look at those. We'll figure that all out. But as the ontological or the essence of who they are, they are spirit. They are not encased in flesh. And because they're not encased in flesh, we need to put some limits on that. We talked a little bit about this last time, the spatial aspect of angels. But I want to show you the distinction here between the two. Isaiah 66, verse 1, uh, and thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All my hand has made all these things. And so all these things came into being. Okay. But to this one, I will look. There's my focused attention. In other words, I, I am not going to be in any particular place. Now, that'll bring up other questions about what was going on in the tabernacle and the temple. More on that perhaps later, because we're going to talk about that. Probably John 4 would have been better. John 4, do you remember the discussion with the woman at the well? Where are we supposed to worship? Mount Gerizim? You guys say Jerusalem there in the southern tribes. What's the deal? And Jesus says, hey, God is what? Spirit, right? It's not about worshiping Him here or there. Time is coming and now is. You're going to worship Him. You worship Him in spirit and truth. He is not contained on a mountain. He's not contained in the temple mount. God is infinite. He's an infinite spirit, okay? Compare that to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, can a man hide himself in a secret place that I cannot see, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? God is an infinite spirit. Daniel 9 was the right passage to speak of angelic beings being focalized, or should I say localized. God, we'll look at, make this distinction later, is focalized when he wants to be. Angels are localized. They have to be. There's a difference there. Daniel 9, 21. While I was speaking, Daniel says, the man Gabriel, we'll talk about that later, he's not a man, uh, he's an angel, whom I had seen in the vision at first came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand speaking, saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Where have you been? I've been somewhere else. God doesn't talk that way. He doesn't need to talk that way because he's infinite. He fills heaven and earth. That's very different. Angelic beings are localized. They're in a place. They have temporal limitations. They're not omnipresent. They're limited. That's what we mean by finite. So they can't be at multiple places at once. They have to localize their presence geographically. That's an awkward idea because they're not encased in matter, but it's helpful for us to recognize the distinction there. You're in Daniel 9. Did, did, I, did I turn to that one? We could look at Daniel 10, too, but I, I won't. 
if you want to jot it down, though, 10 through 14, another example, localized presence. Where you been? I've been held up. Michael helped me, though, and now I'm here. What's that all about? If you're, you know, God never has to say that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, Luke 20, verse 36, Jesus is talking about the fact when the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, do you remember that the, the response was, you don't understand the Scriptures, you don't understand the power of God, because then, if we are in that, that dispensation, if you will, if we're in that time, it says two things. We're not going to die like the angels, and we're not going to marry like the angels. We learn two things about the angelic spirits there. Number one, they don't pair up and procreate, and number two, they don't die. So let's just put that down. There's spirits, intellect, emotion, and will, not encased, but localized, and they live forever. They're not immortal in a perfect sense in that they never had a beginning. They're not like God in that regard. They had a beginning, but they don't have an end. Luke 20, 36, you can look up there on your own. They're able to appear, which is the weird part and interesting part and why many of us are here. Let's figure that part out. Luke 1, 11, we've got that weird situation on the Temple Mount. Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, He's going to have a child in his old age with Elizabeth, and it says an angel appeared. He's in there by himself in the temple, and the angel shows up. Okay, great, they appear. But you understand that we learned from our passage in Colossians 1.16 last week, they're invisible. That's the whole point. If they're invisible spirits, I can't see your spirit. I could cut your body up. I could have cameras on when you die. I won't see anything leave your body. I won't see a spirit. I can't see your spirit. We can't see spirit. These are spirit beings. They are, by definition, invisible. But the whole weirdness of it is they have the ability to to appear. They have the enablement, the permission at times, if you will, to appear. It's not their normal state, but it is what they do. The invisible becomes visible, and now my eyeballs somehow have photons reflecting off of some surface that goes into the rods and cones of my my eyeballs and goes into my brain and I you know picture a person and then if I'm Abraham having a meal with a couple of them I can hand you a piece of fish or a piece of bread and wow their teeth actually work and the the fish and bread disappear they they have an ability to materialize might be another spooky way uh, to say it now here's what you need to recognize when in the Bible we talk about it, there are two kinds of appearances, and they are really radically different. There's an appearance in, I put it this way, in reality, in time and space. Okay? Those are much less weird than the other kind in dreams and visions. More on that in a minute, but let's look at time and space appearances in the Bible. They are rare compared to the others, but they certainly are recorded in Scripture. I just gave you an example of one. Genesis 18, 2, Abraham has a meal with a couple of angels. They are described there as usual men. He knows they're different, but they're not, you know, it's not Casper the friendly ghost. You probably wouldn't want to make a sandwich for him, right? You'd think this isn't, this isn't helpful. It won't work. These guys are normal enough for Abraham to... to to fix a meal they are described as travelers they seem like normal people and we'll get to this later in the series as well but if you want to put another reference down uh, 
Hebrews 13, which is a strange passage, says that we ought to we ought to exemplify hospitality and entertain strangers because in so doing, we might entertain an angel without knowing it. A um, couple of ideas on that passage, but still, that sounds a lot like the stuff we see in the arrangements or the, uh, the occurrences uh, in Scripture of angels appearing and they seem like normal, normal people. I just looked through the appearances in Scripture and saw some adjectives attached to them. How are they described? When it happens in time and space, it's real time, it's not a vision, it's not a dream, uh, they're described as, uh, at least in the resurrection account of Matthew 16, as young men. There were young men there speaking to Mary about the resurrection, sitting there at the empty, empty sepulcher, the empty tomb. Okay, don't know if they're always young. Did they have beards in Genesis 18? Don't know. No description of that, but... Uh, they're young men. And by the way, the two travelers, maybe they were young men, who went on with Lot in the next chapter down to Sodom, what did the perverse men of Sodom want to do with the two travelers? You don't want to say it, but you know what happened there. They wanted to engage in homosexual relations with these angels. Were they young men? I don't know. They probably weren't old, rickety old men, I'm guessing. I don't know. Don't think too much about it. Let's move on. Another interesting thing that does show up on more than one occasion is Luke 24, for instance, talks about the angels at the tomb. And it says that the angels at the tomb were impressively dressed. In one, it just speaks of their white robes, as it does in Acts 1, and the angels there. And one passage goes even further, at least it's translated this way in our text, in dazzling apparel. And, and I think that's the one I chose here. It was Luke 24. Luke 24. Let's look at it, just to show that both elements are here. There are men, uh, they're young men, we learn from the Mark account, and they're dressed in dazzling apparel. Joseph's multicolored coat. Well, I don't know. It's a spiffy duds. Clean. Everybody else is dirty. I don't know. But that's how it's described. Luke 24, 1. First day of the week, early at dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices with them. They'd prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in, there it is, dazzling apparel, freshly pressed right from the heavenly launderer. Uh, I don't know, strange, uh, but their clothing are described. They were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. Why do you seek the living among the dead, they said. The thing that freaked the ones out that the guards saw in Matthew 28 wasn't their clothing. It was what they did. The stone, which would take more than one person, is described as being rolled away by a single angel, and he is sitting up on top of the stone. The actions in Matthew 28 lead the two strong, burly soldiers to here's how it's described in verse four for fear of of that one angel uh, the guards trembled and became like dead men and it wasn't that they weren't normal looking men it's that they did non-normal things they did supernatural things in this case single guy rolls the stone away and leaps up on it he has a appearance that is it does say like lightning with his clothing as white as snow so again apparel is mentioned supernatural feats. This guy wasn't normal and did unusual things. Now, beyond that, 
If you start looking at angelic appearances throughout the Bible, you're going to find it doesn't get much weirder than that. They show up in places that they're not expecting. They appear here and there in the temple or in the Philippian jail or wherever it might be. Uh, but there's not, um, I should say Peter's jail in Jerusalem, but there's not, you know, this weird, you know, face of an ox and a goat and an eagle, right? They're, they're normal looking people doing unusual things dressed in some impressive ways and bringing themselves into, into scenes that aren't expected. So they certainly surprise people. The weirdest depictions of angels are here in this next category in visions and dreams in visions and dreams they appear to people and their descriptions get much weirder much more unusual matter of fact you'll find them in a variety of forms some so odd you can't even figure figure it out uh, one of the assignments i had uh, in, in in my training which you wouldn't think would be part of the theological track was to sit down with a big uh what's the twice the 16, you know, by whatever, 22-inch piece of paper, and uh, I, had to, I had to color. <laughs> I had to draw and artistically render Revelation 4 and 5. I dare you to do that. It was a brilliant assignment from our professor on the book of Revelation because he wanted us to see, you can breeze through these words, but this is a very strange depiction of things. I mean, how do you describe eyes within and without? And so, you know, it, it, gets, it gets weird. It is weird. And so the more you look at the descriptions of angelic beings and they're beyond what you would see in a normal setting of a man having lunch or a man rolling a stone away, you're going to find that these are in visions or apocalyptic revelations. They're not in real time and time and space. Uh, they're unusual. Daniel chapter 10, if you're not careful, you'll read it and you'll think that Daniel is having a conversation with an angel there, but he describes it at the end of the narrative and says it was a vision, the vision that he had by the Kibar River. It wasn't a real discussion with an angel. It was God communicating through a vision, which is different than a dream because it's not when you're asleep, it's when you're awake. It's not at night, it's in the daytime, generally speaking. And he's bizarre. He's described in Daniel chapter 10 as having a weird belt of gold and a body like beryl, a face like lightning, eyes like torches of fire, arms and legs like burnished bronze, all of the, a voice like a mighty multitude. Those are things that are described in visions of angelic beings. Uh, they're even seen as strange creatures. As I mentioned in Revelation chapter 4, you could also put next to that Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, we have these strange beings that have all kinds of weird heads and faces and all multitude of wings and all of this stuff that goes on in those situations. But again, those are apocalyptic visions given to prophets to reveal things about the future that as we search them out, which is the glory of kings, we start to find a clarity about what God is going to do in the future. We have that in Revelation yet to be fulfilled. We had it all in a few books, apocalyptic visions in Ezekiel and Zechariah and a few others. Here's the part that has stuck in our culture and that is they are seen in visions as winged creatures they're not seen in time and space as winged creatures they're seen in visions as winged creatures the very next verse in revelation chapter 4 the apocalyptic vision of heaven that john has he sees them with six wings and uh, they're flying around singing calling out 
holy, holy, holy. Now that's stuck for the, you know, Hallmark calendars, but is only seen in visions. And you, you liberated gals, where there was always men, what's with the men? Okay, Zechariah 5, we do have one depiction of them as women, two women with wings. Now, for only having one reference of a vision in Zechariah chapter 5 of women with wings, that's interesting that that's pretty much what stuck into pop culture uh, as people depicted them. And even through the Renaissance, uh, they're either weird little babies with wings or they're, they're females. But when they appear in time and space, they're, they're described with masculine pronouns and as men. So do with that whatever you'd like. Wings. We should talk about that some more. The very first time wings are described on angels, it's the cherubim in Exodus when they make the box. Ark means box. It's a big ark. You put animals in it. You float during the flood. A small ark, you put stuff in. You put it in the center of the temple or the tabernacle. The ark of the covenant. You put the tablets of the Ten Commandments in the ark, the box of the covenant, the covenant with God of the law through Moses. That's the box of the Ten Commandments. Another way to say that, the way we learned it in Sunday school, the ark of the covenant. On the top of it, they were to make two cherubs, or as they say in Hebrew, cherubim, and they were just depicted as having wings that went over the box. That's the first depiction of the winged angel. Now, in visions, they have wings. In appearances, they don't. The question is, do, the, do angels have wings? The answer is no, right? Do, do you follow me on this? Why? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. They're depicted as having wings, which probably has some symbolism to it, just like having the, the face of an ox has symbolism. No one wants to make a calendar of that, right? Uh, but we want to make calendar of wings because that's cool. But wings are used, real wings are used for what? For flying, for birds to fly. But see, to fly, you fly in, in the air, in our atmosphere. Angels don't, this is not their natural abode. They don't need wings to move air. They don't need me- wings to move. They're spirit beings. They do transport themselves. They are localized. They're finite. But they don't get around by flapping wings. Do you see what I'm saying? That's so disappointing and so demystifying and so frustrating for people whenever I I say that. And I don't mean to take the shine off of the angel thing here, but you do know that when they're depicted as having wings, it is a depiction of something about an angelic being, ready, swift to do His will. You can think through the Psalms, all the songs about the angels you might even want, quick and swift to do, quick to do His will, like the wind. They're also called the wind, right? Uh, that is a picture of ready. What do we, what do we want to do? Like hiring a, a guy to, for facilities. It's just all around. Wow. Ready, quick, swift, ready to do the will of the master. And in this case, the angelic beings are depicted that way. But when you say, do they have anything? It's like saying, does God have eyes? The answer is no. But he's depicted as having eyes. Why? Because he perceives. He doesn't have rods and cones and lenses and retinas to get photons into his eyeballs so he can transmit that into an image in his head because he is not physical. Angels are not physical. Do they appear? Yes, they appear. But they're depicted in visions and dreams as having wings. And then God says in the Old Testament, even before we see the appearances or the visions, I should say, and dreams with wings, he depicts the cherub as having wings. 
two in that case, which is not usually the number we see as the dreams and visions unfold in the Bible. Are you following this? And that's helpful for us. It may demystify a little bit of it, but it's the reality. These are depictions of something that tells us about the nature, the character, the will, the volition, even the emotion as they cover their eyes and cover their feet in Isaiah 6. They're depictions of of, of something that they are. They are not corporal realities. They are not tangible realities of what they are because they don't have any tangible realities unless they make an appearance. And when they do, they seem like normal guys with nice clothes, fancy clothes, doing things that people don't do. There'll be more questions about that, I'm sure. All right, what is their classification? Two conditions. Obviously, and we dealt with this, at least we started this discussion last time. Uh, We have evil angels. Luke chapter 8, verse number 2 calls them that. They are evil spirits. They're not physical. They're spirit beings, but they're called evil. We call them demons, a.k.a. demons, right? Or the Bible calls them the devil's angels. Well, the devil is an angel, but he has a team of angels. I like to call them henchmen because they're bad. It's a bad team. But those angels are his angels. We like to call them demons to distinguish them from the good angels, How do they get bad? We'll look at this when we get into the second half of the semester. But they willfully sinned. They made a a volitional decision, a choice to rebel against God's standard and will. Now they had help because they had a guy that led the way, just like he did as he transversed into time and space in our reality to tempt Adam and Eve. But willfully sinned, as Revelation 12 says. Matter of fact, let's look at that one. That's, That's worth getting your eyeballs on. Uh, as it's the depiction of this battle here. Other things that we'll refer to later in this text, but a willful decision. And when we study Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, we'll tie all this together. But this New Testament reference to it is, is helpful. You don't have war without volition. You don't have war without choice. You don't have war without people taking and pitting their volition against each other. Revelation 12, verse 7 says, Now there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, and the ancient serpent, just so that we can define it, the one who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And that's a mouthful of descriptions and titles of the angelic class and the distinction between the two. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, verses 14 through 16, to give you the whole context, makes this depressing revelation to us. They are permanently lost. There is no redemption for the angelic class. They were all created at or near the same time, had a choice to make regarding a rebellion that was sparked by one angel. And if they chose to rebel with that angel, the Bible says, according to the inference of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, there's no redemption for them. Christ did not do anything to fix their problem. God did do something to fix our problem, which is great because unlike the angels, we weren't there making that decision in the garden, right? So that's good. We get to, as condemned people born into sin, we get to, humanly speaking, have an opportunity to get this thing right through the redemption of Christ. Angelic beings from all time, whenever they were made, they had a decision to make. Once they made it, we're done. And it's over. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, makes the distinction. And plus, you'd think if there was chance for opportunity for redemption, where's the guy in the Scripture like, I don't know, Paul or name it, anybody? Where's the converted angel? Where's the reformed angel? There is no description of that in the Bible. And according to Hebrews 2, verse 16, it doesn't seem, there doesn't seem to be any provision made for that. Of course, the other side of the coin is the holy angels, also called the elect angels, as we saw last week, which, by the way, does speak to the permanence of their salvation and their elect. Mark chapter 8, verse 38 describes them that way. Holy angels, God's angels, John 1, 51. We've seen that distinction, have we not? I mean, there's no clear verse I can look to to show you the volitional choice that the angels made, so there's no text next to this. But clearly, if there was a rebellion and a war going on, if you chose to stay on this side and wear this uniform, if you will, then they made a decision as well, refusing to rebel and sealing their fate, if you will. That's how the Bible describes it. Continue on with classifications. Make the comparison because the Bible spends an entire two chapters trying to make the comparison, one chapter in particular, to describe the distinction between Christ and the angelic class. I got a chart there for you, do I not? Hebrews chapter 1. Let's open up our Bibles, put that down, let's take a look at that. Grab that, grab your Bible, take a look at that. There's Bibles under the seats there for you. Hebrews chapter 1. That text, just scan your eyes to the text. All about one distinction there, particularly the first chapter, though you'll see it bleeds into the second chapter, the distinction between angels and Christ and the whole purpose of the redemption. But in Hebrews chapter 1, there's a lot of distinctions made. Okay? Hebrews chapter 1, let's start in verse number 1. Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, here's the line here, through whom also He created the world. Put in the margin there or on your notes. We looked at this one last week. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. All things that were made were made through the Word. The Word was God, Christ. And nothing was made that has been made unless Christ made it. So He is the Creator, right? And the angels are created. Colossians 1.16 would be a third text you could jot down. He created these things. They were created by the agency of Christ for the glory of Christ. Christ is uncreated. So I know that they're less than Christ. That's what Hebrews 1 is all about. They're less than Christ categorically because they're created and Christ is not. The text goes on in verse number 3 saying, He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by His power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We've already established that angels, because they have intellect, emotion, and will, are created in the image of God. Angels are not the image of God. Angels are made in the image of God. In the image and is the image of God. Radical difference. Are you tracking with that? Angels are created. Christ is not. Angels are in the image of God. Christ is the image of God. That's what verse 3 says. See the difference there? The text is established. It's the whole reason for the argument because they revered the angels as a class greater than themselves. Psalm 8, right? I mean, here are these great angels. We have been made a little lower than the angels. Uh, The whole mediation of the law through the angels on, on Mount Sinai. The Jews thought the angels were it. And, and they are better than us. But the whole point of the text is here, as you look at the arguments through this text, they are less than Christ. 
Sure, angels are greater than, than us, but Christ is greater than them. The distinction, the categorical distinction of created and creation, the categorical distinction of being the image of God or being in the image of God, greater than men, yes, angels are, greater than angels, Christ is. Angels are servants. That's how the passage ends. Look at verse 6. I'm going to just jump in the middle of this. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They're servants. He's the son. That's the whole point. He's spoken to us, not through the mediation of the prophets or the angelic beings, but in Christ. Christ is the son of God. That's the Son of God, not a Son of God. We'll look at that too as this unfolds. They are simply servants. Angels are messengers. That's the whole point of the word as we learned last time. Look at verse 13. Which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make an enemy, your enemies a footstool for your feet? They're not rulers. They're, they're, they're messengers of the king. They're ministering spirits, verse 14, sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. He's the ruler. He's the king. Now, that's basic stuff, but it's important to look at because the Bible goes to great lengths to make the distinction. Christ is in a whole other category and distinct than the angelic beings. Which, by the way, in some cultic groups, if you're calling Michael the archangel Christ, you've missed, I don't know, the whole first chapter of Hebrews, which is, of course, what many groups say. Michael's clearly not Christ. More on that at a different night. They're similar to us, though. Let's look at this chart here. We've already established their persons, and that's helpful. So let's just summarize all three of those with this line. You have an affinity to angels, in a sense, because you are created in God's, God's image. Unlike Christ, who can see and know what Nathaniel's doing or Philip's doing from far away, we can't. You've got to be localized. You're finite. You're limited. You're localized as well as focalized. Angels are the same way. You pay attention to one thing at a time. That's what the angelic class has to do. They're dependent. You're dependent. If, if God were, as Job says, to withdraw his attention or his spirit from, from everything, everything would cease to exist. He, according to Colossians 1.16, holds all things together. The angelic class is part of that list. We're dependent. They're dependent. And just like we have been given various abilities and have been given various responsibilities, which the Bible goes to great lengths to say about the elect, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We all have a role to play. We're all gifted in different ways. He dispenses his gifts in a variety of ways, and he calls you to be a good steward of what he gives you. It's the same way in the angelic class, as we'll see. They have various abilities and various responsibilities. And just like anybody who God entrusts with responsibilities and abilities, he makes them accountable as we sacrifice our children on the parking lot. But they're distinct from people. Letter D. Angels and people are distinct. We've drawn some of these so far in the passages we've looked at, but let's put them together on a, on a quick chart. Angels are spirit. You're spirit plus a body. Even when you're without your body, you will feel, 2 Corinthians 5, naked, you'll want a body back. They are comfortable without having bodies. I bet they feel weird being in one when they appear from time to time. They are invisible by nature. That's what they are, invisible, because you're encased in a body, of course. If I have enough photons in the room, you're visible. They don't reproduce. We could look at all these passages, but we've referenced them in the past. You can. 
they never die. And in a sense, your spirit never dies once it was created, but you are in a body that dies, which will be a weird experience for us all. But after that, our non-dying spirit, like the non-dying angelic spirit, will get a body back and be back into a physical encasement. Now here's an interesting comparison. All throughout the Bible, the case is made that they are superior in their attributes. Everything about them, their knowledge, their power, their, their, their deafness to do God's will, their, their purity, all of that. They're better than us. And yet the Bible makes the case that we are treated better than they are and that we are valued more. I mean, that's the whole point of the next chapter in Hebrews 2, that redemption and Christ's focus of love and redemption was to us, not to them. Even in, I already quoted uh, Psalm 8, but when it says, look at us, we were created a little lower than the angels, the whole rest of that is about how we've been given dominion over the earth. Paul makes the same point about the future. He says, can't you figure out your own disputes? Because one day you will even judge, what? Angels. We are going to be treated with more favor and be given more privilege because God has put more value on us. Go figure that one out. But they are described as superior to us throughout the text. That's one worth pondering and being thankful to God for. Names which depict their roles. Angels. Malak in the Hebrew. Angelos in the New Testament. It means messenger. We've already learned that. Two things, if we want to go through these quickly, that that will give us a sense of. They are messengers of of information. If there's revelation that's not in the book with clarity that he wants to get across to someone on earth, he gives that information oftentimes through the appearance of an angel. Uh, Hey, Zechariah, you're going to have a kid and he's going to be special. He'll be the forerunner to the Christ. Uh, Elizabeth's going to have a child. He brings a messenger. Hey, Mary, you're going to have a kid. It's going to freak you out because you haven't had sex. I know that's weird, but it's the Holy Spirit. So chill out. Christ is coming. You're going to be the mom. That's not, that's a paraphrase. (laughs) But God is sending information through the angel. He's also depicting them and calling them messengers because he is sending his will. He's sending his action through angelic beings. Revelation 16.1, we looked at that last week, or at least we quoted it, that the angels there were sent out to dispense the wrath of God in the tribulation. That is being a different kind of messenger. It's not like, I got a message for you. Pow, right? Uh, It's different than a verbal message. They also are bringing message, I should say, they're also messengers in the sense of delivering the good side as well, and we, I'm sure we'll stumble across those passages as well as we move through the series. They're also called ministers, diakonos, ministers, uh, those who are, are servants. I mean, that's the word. Uh, the doulos, the, 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 the ones who bring some kind of service uh, to someone else in two ways. Number one, uh, they serve the people of God. That's what Hebrews 1.14 that we just read said. They are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. How does that happen? Variety of ways. It's a strange reality. We'll see more examples of it. But there are ways in which they're going to somehow aid and help the people of God. They're also used or described, I should say, as serving in worship. And that's different. 
As a matter of fact, it's an entirely different word, though it's the word translated into our language, servant. There's a word from which we get the word liturgical. It's the Greek word that is translated servant in our Bible. And it doesn't have to do with the diakonos, the service of, of serving someone, or uh, doulos, helping someone out. It has to do with being a, uh, a, a worshiper. And, and the temple in the Old Testament uh, was filled with servants that weren't serving anybody outside, any, any fellow person. They were said to be serving God. The priestly servants, the Mishrathim is the Hebrew word for that. The Mishrathim were those who worshipped God in the temple. I mean, you didn't get anything out of it. I guess you could join in and, and, and enjoy that, but they were serving God. A good passage that may help, as long as we're into the Psalms here now for a little while. Let's turn to this one, Psalm 104, 104 verse 4. Psalm 104, verse 4. We'll get us started with some of these Psalms here. There are words that are translated servant that have to do with attending to someone. There's a word that is related to worship that directs service toward God simply by praising Him or magnifying His name. Here's the word we're familiar with in verse number 4, the first one. He makes His malak, His messengers, the standard word for angel. He makes His malak, His angels, winds. They're swift. They go. That's where the picture, the depiction of wings comes from. They're quick to do His will. His Mishrathim. Mishrathim are the servants in the temple, the ministers of flaming fire. Even our word minister is kind of weird because it can be seen in two directions. Are they serving God? Right? Well, that's what we mean by minister. But really, they're the minister. They serve the people. Angels are seen both ways, and the word servant in our English text goes both directions. The service of people, the service of God. Angels are seen as both. Here's another word that shows up repeatedly in the Bible to describe the angelic beings. A host. A host is an old way to say an army. Uh, you know, a, a battalion of, of, of fighters. A corps of, of warriors. Clearly, this is seen in two different ways as well, but I mean, we'll just call it, you know, a passive and active use of it. There, there is the, the, the extension of his, of his power in the kind of the regality, in, 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 a, in a king surrounded by his army, the Lord and his host. When Christ returns with his holy angels, the, that's the picture in the Old Testament, it's usually called the host of heaven, the armies of heaven, right? I mean, David even runs against uh, 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 Goliath with that on his lips. God is the God of the heavenly host which sounds like a throng of worshipers, that's not what host means. It's about the army. It's about the fighting force, which for a king in peacetime is just an extension of his great regal majestic power. In wartime, it's an extension of his, you know, his wrath, his, his, his retribution. And though it's seen that way uh, in Revelation, we've already seen and quoted Psalm six, uh, Rev 16 enough. Host. Angels, ministers, Host, those are three words for the angelic beings which depict their roles. Here's another one, chariots, or even chariots of fire. That's how it's, and it's not just a movie. This may be a surprise to some of you. Uh, that's from the Bible. That is the biblical depiction of the angels. Uh, let's turn to this one because it's such a unique and overlooked and misunderstood reference. The chariots. 
Second Kings chapter 6. Let's go there. Verse 17 is the punchline. And I'll set this up for you. King Assyria coming against... Uh, well, they're really... They've unfortunately named Elisha as the guy who's going to be the troublemaker. And so uh, they've got, uh, I believe, in the hills of Dothan, they've sent out their, their chariots and horses. So you got the stinky, uh, you know, tired, uh, you know, big brutes in the army of the Syrians, and they're riding their chariots and their horses. They've certainly got Israel and the prophet you know, out, outgunned. And, and here is Elisha with his servant... And uh, the servants freaked out, understandably, right? We're surrounded. Let's pick up the story, verse 14. 2 Kings 6, 14. So he, that's the king of Syria, sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and there came by, they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha, rose early in the morning, he went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Oh, bummer. And the servant said, wow, that's more than a bummer. Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Elisha says, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he's going, wow, don't get it, right? Because we're outnumbered and you can't count, uh, Elisha, because we are definitely the minority here. I mean, it sounds like a lot of the stories in the book of Judges, though this is a dramatic response. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed, oh Lord, please open his eyes. He wants this servant to see it, that he may see So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That depiction of flaming chariots. Now it's one thing to have some big strong guy who's worked out a lot and maybe shot a few steroids or whatever, you know, uh, in the army against you in the hills surrounding your camp. But to see chariots that are blazing like fire And that is the depiction, too, of God, right? In Hebrews, he is a consuming fire. Fire consumes. He consumes his adversaries, the Bible. If you reject Christ, this is all you have left to to, to anticipate. If you willfully uh, reject the the truth, right? You go and willfully sin after receiving the knowledge of truth. You have nothing to expect but but the consuming vengeance of God. And here he sees when the godly man is backed up against the wall, consuming angelic hosts that come to fight was also what took Elijah away in chapter 2, you might remember. You've got to see this one because of its connections to Revelation. Zechariah 6. Let's call them here, not in wartime, but in prepared readiness time, if you will, peacetime, but getting ready. They're seen here as patrollers. They're called the chariots of God. Take a look at it. Zechariah 6. Verse 1, Zechariah 6, 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and I saw... Now again, Zechariah is an apocalyptic book. It's God showing this vision to Zechariah about what was to come. Okay? Like, much like Revelation. Multimedia presentation for Zechariah. What did you see? Behold, I saw four chariots come out of heaven between two mountains. And the mountains were bronze. So this is clearly not reality. This is a picture, a vision. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third had white horses, and the fourth chariot uh, dappled horses, spotted horses, all of them strong. Like, okay. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and he said to me, these are, are going out to the four winds of heaven, 
and presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Does that sound like Job 1? Right? There they are. They're standing before God. These are the angelic beings. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north, and the white one goes after them, and the dappled one toward the south country. And when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. There's the picture of the angelic class as chariots. Chariots were tanks of the day. Think of it that way, right? Angels were depicted as this fighting force, this impenetrable, devouring, consuming fighting force. And in this case, I love the word translated patrolling. We just, you know, the tanks are just going through the godless streets to look out for the people of God. That's a new one to some of you, huh? Chariots, fighting force. One more. The watchers, the watchers, only used in Daniel only three times. But in extra biblical writings and in the, the rabbinic writings and the, the, the intertestamental period, they love that name for the angelic. As a matter of fact, when they, restole, when they retold the story in the extra biblical writings between the Testaments about the Old Testament events, instead of using the word angels, they like to use the word watchers. That was one of their favorite words, the watchers. The watchers were supervisors. Let's go to Daniel 4. This is the passage uh, that uses the word where he calls the angels watchers. Now, I mean, it's not hard to kind of figure out what the watchers are doing. In verse 13, they're watching, okay? Verse 13, I saw the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And again, I'm leaning on a lot of what I've read in extra-biblical writings too to, to, to fill in that. I mean, that is the picture of them observing. They're coming down out of heaven. They've been watching. They're you know, kind of like the chariots patrolling, only they're not there to, you know, to thump. You know, they're, they're not the, the brute force. They're not the grunts, if you will. But they're, they're supervised. They're watching. Okay. Now, drop down to verse 17. This is the, the, the whole scene with Nebuchadnezzar and his pride, and he's so prideful, and Daniel's there. So we've got God's people under this prideful king. And, and they depicted through this dream that Nebuchadnezzar's going to go crazy. Verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision of the word of the holy ones, the angels, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Now, if you said, who turned Nebuchadnezzar? Who decided to turn Nebuchadnezzar into an animal and eat grass and grow his, his fingernails really long and be crazy for a while? Oh, God did that. Do you see what's happening here? The administration of the watchers is even to make decisions about doing what God's will should be so that people will recognize God for who he is. They are administrating on behalf of God. That's a great text. They watch and they decide. Do they have unmitigated power? No. Do they have delegated power? Yes. And that's not how we usually think of angels. We kind of see them as, I don't know, brainless servants. They're not. The watchers carries that view of they're watching, they're working, they're deciding, they're administrating. Names that depict their position. There are names throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, which give us a sense of their, their power and their position. Let's look at this one, or at least jot it down. Sons of the Mighty. Sons of the Mighty. Unfortunately, the ESV has tucked this away, and it only translates this word, or this, these two words, Ben Elim, it translates them heavenly beings. Uh, ben is child, Elim is mighty, 
heavenly beings is just trying to clarify that we're talking about angels here. But unlike the ESV to do this, but that's not what those words are. Sons of the mighty. Obviously, to be a son of the mighty is to be a mighty one like, you know, to be like the mighty one in might. I'm, I'm powerful like the mighty one. And that obviously is in comparison to you. You have less might. I have a lot of might. I'm a lot stronger than you, kind of like God is a lot stronger than you, only he's infinitely stronger than you. That's the picture of the description of them as the mighty ones. And if you want to know how that works in the Hebrew idiom of the Bible, uh, just recall Barnabas being called the son of encouragement. What we're trying to say with that is he's just like the embodiment of encouragement. He is an encourager. The mighty one is the mighty one. He's a son of the mighty one. He reflects the might of the mighty one. This will get weirder, at least the more it'll stretch your mind a little bit more. Ben Elim, I get that, son of the mighty one, but they're also called the Ben Elohim. The Ben Elohim, Ben means son. Elohim is the word for God. They're called the sons of God. Bene Elohim, the, the plural. Now, I said this last time. Part of it is a picture I, I'm, I'm taking an intelligent guess at because they are all directly created by God in that we are uh, a product of the procreation of, of human beings. They are all sons of God. They all have this kind of first-generation relationship with the Creator. Job 1.6, the sons of God come and present themselves. I say that because the demons and Satan are also covered by that phrase. So it's not like son of the mighty one in that he reflects the character of God because he's not a son of God at all if you're Satan and Satan's the one who comes and presents himself when the sons of God come to present themselves, the angelic class. But there is clearly a um, sense in which when the holy or elect angels are described as sons of God, we can rightly say, hey, they reflect the holiness of God in some way. They're like God in that they're holy. And I just want to give you one example. Mikael, Mikael, Michael, is called Mikael, and Mikael means, El is for Elohim. Mikael means one who's like God, who is like God, literally. Now, some people think it's a question, but half the people think it's a statement, and you can read all the scholars and the Hebrew linguists on that. But the point is, uh, Michael is certainly a lot more like God than we are, and he has that sense of superiority, and he reflects the characters of God. You would never say Satan is a Ben Elohim in that regard, but he is a Ben Elohim in that he's the first generation product of God, and we're not, at least in our creation, in your recreation or your regeneration you are. That's why we are called spiritual sons of God. They're also called, this will blow your mind, Elohim. They're called by God's name. Elohim. Elohim is the most common word for God 22,602 times. Elohim. It's everywhere. Elohim. Remember I said uh, cherubim is plural. Cherub is singular. Elohim, I am. Anytime you see an I am transliterated from Hebrew, it's a plural. Elohim is a plural. When you speak of God and you use the word Elohim some thousands of times in the Bible, um, it's a plural and it's just weird. Like in Genesis, when it says in, in Genesis uh, 1, what is it, 26, it says, let us, then it says, and God said, Elohim, plural, God said, let us make men in our, man in our own image. The plural there is weird. And then the pronoun plural is weird. Well, that becomes God's name. It is God's name in the Old Testament. 
it's at least a description of who he is. He's the mighty one, but he's so mighty that he's the mighty ones. And he speaks in a plural, probably an allowance for, as Wilkie and Kaiser and all the linguists say, uh, for, I mean, God is triune. God is a plural, right? Uh, And from the very first chapter of the Bible, he's presented as such. But when the word is used referring to angelic beings, the plural is a real plural. It is a real plural with God too, but it's a real, real plural because these are distinct and divisible individuals, the, 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 the angelic beings. Are you following this? 200 times it's used that way. 200 times it's used to refer to the angelic beings or something like the angelic beings. Even the demons are, are called this when it talks about sacrificing to the gods. It's often translated that way. God, small g with an S. It's the same word for God's name, Elohim, but you've got to ferret that out based on context. Are we talking about the God who's called God's? because he's so wow God. It's called in, in, in grammar a, a, majest, a plural of majesty. He's so great, it's a plural. Uh, it also allows us for the theological understanding of a triune God. But oftentimes we're talking about gods and angels. God even calls us, by the way, gods at one point. At least he ta- calls the rulers gods. Do you remember that passage? Jesus quotes it in the New Testament, Psalm 82, 6. Okay, so why would God call the angels God? Because they have authority like God has. They don't have the same authority God has, but they have authority, delegated authority. And the delegated authority they have earns them a title that reflects the authority of God. They're gods in that they're powerful, more powerful than people. Sharing characteristics of encouragement, that's what Barnabas, Barnabas was the personification of of some degree of encouragement. I'm sure he would, you know, ask his wife. He wasn't encouraging all the time, right? Um, and so angels don't have all the qualities of God, but they reflect the quality of God. Kadosh, kadosh is the word for, for um, holy, means holy, and kadoshim is, is the holy ones. Two things. They're set apart. Holy is a technical term. They're not like us. They're different than us. They're called holy ones in context like Psalm 89, 7. And they're also morally good like God. Psalm 15, 15, they are morally good. They're, more, they're holy. Not all of them, obviously. But God doesn't call the demons holy ones, although he could technically use the term. They're set apart from us, but he refers to good angels that way. Stars. We already saw one passage where they're called stars. Here's another one. Job 38, for instance, 7, we quoted that last week, when God created the world, the morning stars sang together. The reference to angel is stars. This one's a little richer. I mean, it's a little, it's, it's, it's a little deeper and broader. The stars, right, sit above us. And, and, and I know we live in the city, but back then you walk out, it's like you're in the mountains, and you see all those stars, right, all kind of shining down on us. This is the picture of it. The stars in the sky were called the host of heaven. Heaven had three definitions. The sky where the birds fly, space where the stars hang out, and heaven where God lives. Heaven, heaven, heaven. Those all the same word. We don't have distinction. We don't have God's living room, space, and sky. They're all called the heavens. The stars are called the host of heaven, the armies of heaven, and the angels are called the host of heaven, the armies of heaven. The similarity there is poetic. I mean, it's, there's so many poetic aspects to that. They're always there, but at night you see them. They're invisible, but then they're visible until the new dispensation, if you will. Um, 
They, uh, they reflect glory. They're glorious. They're sparkly. The, 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 the glory of God, the, the projection of the glory of God in the angelic beings. Um, they're above us. The angels are above us. They're looking down at us. The angels are looking down. They're occupants of heaven. They're occupants of heaven. It's just a poetic picture. The kokab. Cherubim. Highest rank, maybe. Uh, nearest to God. They're always depicted as God's bodyguards. Kind of his posse. You know, his close group. The reason I say highest rank with a question mark, I'll tell you later why it's a question mark, but in Ezekiel 28, it's the depiction of the fall of Satan. He's called a glorious cherub. If there are distinctions between these names in terms of rank and power, Satan, of course, was at the highest rank. He is called a cherub. It's on top of the ark in the temple. Now, this is an interesting thing. Do you remember that when the glory of God was to reside in the temple, after they built the temple, for instance, put the box in there, got the angels on it, and then this light presence came down and the glory of God rested where? On the wings of the cherubim. That was the focalized presence of God. That is what happens in the temple as a visual, for instance, in the, 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 the tabernacle, Exodus 25 and later in the temple. Psalm 99.1 is the real thing. God who rides on the wings of the cherubim. The vision of a God who hangs out with the cherubim. Seraphs or seraphim. Seraph and seraphim. Those are transliterated words. Seraph is fire, fiery. It's an adjective. The seraph. Seraphim are the fiery ones. And they only appear once in Scripture, and that's in Isaiah chapter 6, the burning ones, the fiery ones. Uh, and remember, it's interesting, they're called the fiery ones, and they're even going to the fire, picking up a coal from the fiery fire, and going over and touching Isaiah's lips in the vision. They're associated with fire, they're surrounding God, they have six wings, they're covering their face, they're yelling out, holy, 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 just like we see the angels in Revelation doing the same, the burning ones. There's one more class, the living creatures. Two times we see the living creatures, which are the weirdest depiction of angels in the Bible. Ezekiel 1 and Rev 4. And if you take time to read those, you'll find two similarities and three distinctions. So let me give you those. They're both four, four living creatures. There are four in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. There's actually two passages that describe them. Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 and Rev 4. But the four living creatures that are clearly described as angels are four in both depictions. They both are shown or depicted as a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Okay, More on that another time. We have no time. No time. Those are all represented by them. And both John and, and Ezekiel go, well, yeah, look at that. There's a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Here's the problem. The distinction is that each has four faces in Ezekiel's vision. So four of them all have four faces. So what's that? 16? Wasn't a math major. That's 16, right? Thank you. I'm helping my daughter with her times tables. 16. Uh, that's 16 faces. That's not how they're depicted in Revelation. In Revelation, there's four living creatures with each with one face. Same representations, ox, uh, lion, man, and eagle. Ezekiel 1, they have four wings. Now, this is really interesting. In Ezekiel 1, they're clearly called cherubim, and in Revelation, they have six wings, and the only one that have six wings, or at least depicted in a vision, are the seraphim of Isaiah's prophecy. They talk about a lot of eyes, which are some kind of massive perception they have, 
They're in the wheels that are associated with the four living creatures riding on top of. And in Revelation, they're all over. Some say that really messes everything up because if this is a seraph and this is a cherubim, maybe there is no, maybe these are all the same. Living creatures, cherubim, seraphim, maybe they, maybe there's not a ranking here. Now there is a ranking, but maybe they're not ranked by class with their names. They all maybe just depict a different aspect of their glory and power. So much more I had hoped to say, but we press on. Please come back next week. Let's pray. God, so much to cover in so little time, but thanks for this group that hung in there. And I pray you make us good students of your word with the questions that this raises. May you give us a studious heart to go back to your word and learn what we can. Keep us from speculation that takes us too far afield from your text. If we can fill in the blanks, great. But God, if, uh, if we're just left with wondering, then help us to be content, as Deuteronomy 29 says, that some of the secret things, the unrevealed things, they belong to you. You haven't revealed them. What you have revealed belong to us. So what we know is what we've talked about in terms of rank and classification and position and reflection of, of roles. Uh, but God, what we don't know, we'll find out, I assume, one day in Jesus' name. Amen.